this is Dr. Paul Sachs. I'm editor-in-chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases. And as a reminder, that's OFID, not OFID. So on today's OFID podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Eric Weiner. Dr. Weiner is professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and he's director of the Breast Cancer Program and senior vice president for medical affairs at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He is clearly not an infectious diseases doctor, though, as you'll soon learn, his life story should be quite relevant and fascinating to all of us. Eric, uh, welcome, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today. I'm happy to do it. Okay, well, my father is a psychoanalyst, and he would be very proud of me for starting this conversation with you as follows. Eric, tell us a little bit about your childhood. I guess I'd have to say that I didn't have the typical childhood. When I was 13 months old, my parents found out that I had hemophilia. It wasn't a great surprise to them. My mother's father had hemophilia and had died a few years before that. And his life had been complicated repeatedly by many, many bleeding episodes. And so when I was finally definitively tested, they found out that I had factor eight deficiency And I've spent the next 10 to 12 years bouncing in and out of the hospital. My family was living in Boston, and we would spend a lot of time at Children's Hospital. Typically, I'd have a bleed, most commonly in my elbow or ankle, and we'd try to wait it out and see if it would stop, immobilizing the joint and putting ice on it. And then when it didn't stop, I would go in and get fresh frozen plasma. I managed to get through school. My parents sent me to a private school so that my absences were less of a problem. I missed about half a year every year. And that's sort of the way it was until I was, oh, probably about 11 or 12 when there was initially cryoprecipitate and then factor eight concentrates. And a couple of years after those products became available, I started taking them prophylactically every other day to prevent bleeding. And how did that change your life? I mean, obviously, they're very effective, but do you remember the difference between you before and after factor? Yes. I went from being a pretty abnormal kid who played no sports, was out of school all the time, walked around with splints on my elbows almost always because I was always either bleeding or recovering from a bleed. And suddenly I could lead a pretty normal life. I mean, getting factor eight every other day really prevented almost all unexpected bleeds. I mean, if I fell or if something happened, I'd sometimes go in for an extra dose. But all the spontaneous hemothroses that I used to develop were gone. Do you think your experience as a child made you more likely to become a doctor? I mean, how do you think that ended up influencing your career decision? Yes, clearly it affected my choice to be a doctor. I always wanted to be a doctor when I was going in and out of children's, when I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten. When I was in high school, I decided that I wasn't so great at science and that my strengths were in other areas. So although I initially was thinking that when I went to college, I would take pre-med courses and apply to medical school, I ultimately decided that I'd try something different, and I majored in Russian studies and history. <laughs> a good background for a future oncologist. And I, and I took absolutely no science for four years. Wow. 
And then ultimately, though, something must have happened. I had a lot of ambivalence, but what would happen is that I would go back to Children's to pick up my factor eight, and I'd see doctors and patients walking around, and it pulled at me for some reason. And I started the year after I graduated from college in a master's program in Russian and East European studies with the plan that I would take organic chemistry on the side because I had actually taken chemistry and biology the summer before that. A common hobby. <laughs> yeah, and then when they, would, when they wouldn't let me take organic chemistry as part of my master's program, I just dropped out of graduate school and took pre-med courses and went right on to medical school after that. So what years, sorry to disclose your age as we get older. That's okay. <laughs> so I'm 61. I graduated from college in 78. I took pre-med courses the year after, and I actually didn't take a year off. I was at Yale, and I guess I had done well enough in college that the medical school was willing to wait until the spring when they got all my pre-med course grades and MCATs, and they accepted me to start in the fall of 79. Now here is where I would normally insert the typical... Harvard versus Yale comment, but I'm going to refrain for the purposes of this discussion and say that they made the right choice. Um, I, I do want to bring up the dates again because they're actually quite relevant for our discussion. So this is the late 70s. And soon after that, obviously, in the early 80s, we learned about this new disease, HIV and AIDS. And when did you first hear that use of factor might be associated with developing HIV? So if I remember right, the first report of AIDS in Morbidity and Mortality Weekly was in 1981. Yes, correct. And those first five cases were not people with hemophilia. But within about a year, there were reports of cases of AIDS in people with hemophilia. I have to say, when I first heard that, and I remember where I was sitting when I heard it, I thought to myself, gee, they say they don't know what this is about, but it's pretty clearly going to be an infectious illness. And I was pretty convinced that if it was an infectious illness, that everybody with hemophilia probably had it. Because we had all been taking these pooled lots of plasma where 10,000 donors would contribute to a single lot of factor eight. Ironically, about a year and a half before that, I had been driving from Boston to New Haven with a friend of mine from medical school who commented that, oh, I was totally normal now that factor eight was available. And I remember saying to her, well, that's true, but you never know what it does to inject the blood of all these people in, mm. into your own system every other day. It was a very uh, prescient comment. You talk about it right now very dispassionately. Were, were you afraid? Before I knew about AIDS, I wasn't afraid. I mean, I just said that as a statement of fact, and I didn't know what could potentially happen. When I first heard about AIDS in people with hemophilia, I, I was scared. And even though I assumed that I was infected, I actually immediately switched from getting factor eight to taking cryoprecipitate because with each dose of cryoprecipitate, I would expose myself to five to 10 donors, not 10,000. Now, the HIV test was not available right away. Right. And obviously the virus wasn't discovered until later. But when the HIV test became available, did you have any reluctance about getting tested? I didn't do it at first. This all was wrapped up in being newly married and wanting to have children. 
we had a son who was born in August of 85. By that point, there was that much more talk about AIDS and people with hemophilia, and I decided that it was just time to get tested and to confirm what I thought was already the case. I was tested and confirmed the fact that I had HIV. And my wife was tested at the same time, and she was negative. So did finding out change your life in any way? It sounds like you sort of assumed you were affected before, but then you did find out definitively. Yeah, it changed it over time. So at first, a lot of people were saying that they didn't think that everybody was going to get sick, that one in 100, one in 50, one in 10 people would get sick. So I didn't view it necessarily as such horrible news. Pretty soon after our son was born, there was more talk about heterosexual transmission. And so it was really at that point in time that we started practicing safe sex. And it affected how we went about making decisions about additional children. We had a second child who was born 14 months after our first and used an ovulation predictor kit so that we could absolutely minimize the number of exposures that Nancy, my wife, had. So then things changed. I went off and did a fellowship at Duke, and I was suddenly surrounded by people who were talking about the fact that everybody was going to get sick and die. This felt like new information to me. By this point in time, I was beginning to have some symptoms that worried me a little bit. I had a lot of funny rashes. My fingernails and cuticles, they were all ragged and sometimes bled. And then I started having night sweats all the time. And I got used to having night sweats. I would wake up every night with a drenching sweat and have to get out of bed and put down a towel and what have you. In hindsight, we all recognize those as symptoms of HIV disease progression. But we didn't have HIV viral load measurements. We did have CD4 measurements. Right. So. I was seeing people at this point, and my CD4 counts were being checked. There was one time when instead of the typical count of like 400 that I had, and I specifically remember it, 190 CD4 cells, and I thought that the end was near since less than 200 was counted in the definition of AIDS. But then it quickly came up, and I felt a little bit better about that. I also developed pneumococcal pneumonia with a septic arthritis in my second year of fellowship. And while that's not an AIDS-defining illness, I also was aware of the fact that my HIV status contributed to that. Nonetheless, we went on and had a third child, much to the dismay of many of our friends and family members. Now, all this time, you're implying you've told your friends and family members, but doesn't sound like you were telling your colleagues. So I was pretty selective about who I told. This was mostly friends, not family members, because in spite of the fact that my parents were relatively young and visited us often, and we were reasonably close, it wasn't something that I wanted to talk to them about. Mm -hmm. We talked pretty selectively to friends. You know, this is also the time when there was a lot of discrimination. Oh, sure. And we were worried as a family that the parents of our children's friends wouldn't want our children to come over and play with their kids if they knew that I had HIV. Sure. I was worried that I wouldn't be able to find a job. So I finished my fellowship in 1989, and nothing made me happier than when the chair of the Department of Medicine at Duke offered me a job because I figured, thank God I'm employable. 
And we were very careful about telling people. It felt very funny to me because I had spent my life with hemophilia being pretty open about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd walk around as a little kid with these splints on my arms and bandages, and people would say, did you break your arm? And I'd explain to them that I had hemophilia. Mm. And now suddenly, not only could I not even tell people that I had HIV, I couldn't even tell people that I had hemophilia because I was afraid that that would make them think that I had HIV. Right, right. I started a clinical trial that was going to take five to ten years to complete, and I thought, you know, I'm probably going to be dead before it's done. Does it make sense to do this? There was no denial going on. Well, it shows how a person can have both a very morbid thought like that, but simultaneously hold out some hope, which clearly you did. And appropriately so, because now it sort of takes us into the mid to late 90s when HIV therapy became suddenly effective. So I just have to say, I don't know that I had so much hope that it was going to be different. I think I just felt like I had no choice but to live my life that Mm. I was living. I thought about HIV a moderate amount, by no means all the time. And I do remember worrying about how I would die Hmm. and thinking about all the very unpleasant ways I could die because I had taken care of patients with Hmm. end-stage HIV as a resident. Yeah. So let's shift now to the other virus that came along with that contaminated factor to the hepatitis C and just your liver in general. Yeah. Tell us about that. So like HIV, I sort of assumed that I had hepatitis C. But I remember being tested probably in like 1992 and getting the news, and it really threw me when it was positive. Hmm. I just thought, oh, God, another thing to deal with. And by this time, there were people with HIV and hepatitis C who seemed to have very accelerated courses in terms of their liver disease. Right, right. In fact, the leading cause of death for people with hemophilia for a while was hepatitis C. Yeah. And then we moved to Boston in 1997. And within a year or two of moving here, I took a six-month course of interferon and ribavirin with the hope of eradicating the virus. The virus actually disappeared, but then rapidly recurred a month after I finished therapy. And that experience of being an interferon, what was it like? I had grade four diarrhea. It felt like, you know, I didn't need intravenous fluids, but I had pretty severe diarrhea. And I developed terrible mouth sores. You know, I lived on smoothies for six months and lost about 15 pounds, and I was just miserable. Did you have to stop working? No, 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 I worked. That's sort of what I do is I work. I didn't do much else, but I saw patients. I ran our program. Hmm. Hopefully I did so competently. And then it didn't work. And it didn't work. And after that, I had a liver biopsy that looked normal. And I said, I'm not doing this again. Yeah, yeah. But there's another part to this story. Yes, unfortunately. So I took the first course of interferon and ribavirin in 1999. And then in 2003, I did this bike ride across the U.S. And when I was training for it, it turned out that I was anemic and I had a GI workup and the person who did the upper endoscopy said that he thought it looked like I was having bleeding from my stomach that looked like hepatic gastropathy and I just said he doesn't know what he's talking about. Because of the normal liver biopsy? Because I had had a normal liver biopsy, I said there's no way this is the case, you're just wrong and I ignored it. 
And then six months later, I was at home sick with the flu and had a very significant esophageal varices bleed. Hmm. I was hospitalized for a few days, and I remember being ready to undergo the endoscopy in the ER, and I said to my wife, the worst thing I could have would be varices, and that's what I had. So at this point, thinking that maybe my hepatitis C was contributing to this, I took another course of ribavirin, and this time pegylated interferon. I did it for a year, and thankfully, it actually did eradicate the virus. Yeah, yeah. You must hear the stories of how hepatitis C treatment has improved and <laughs> feel yeah, no, 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 a no. little jealousy. Yeah, it's, you only can do what's available at a given time, and I had to go through it. Yeah. But I functioned during that time. I kept working. I gave some pretty significant lectures. I wrote papers. But I would come home and I would crash every night. Oh, it's incredible. And I only could manage to go get back and forth to work because my wife worked at the same place at Dana-Farber. And she would drive me in. And I remember sitting in the car as we were driving in, trying to get some additional sleep and just hoping the trip would take as long as possible. Yeah. It's a treatment that's associated with such fatigue and such psychiatric side effects, irritability and depression. It's really remarkable you were able to work through it. I don't think my children enjoyed it either. <laughs> <laughs> but this doesn't explain the Pharisees then with the normal liver biopsy. No. So in the end, it looks like my liver disease, which was essentially portal hypertension in the absence of cirrhosis, was probably related to the DDI that I had taken a number of years earlier. Yeah. Although it took a while to sort that out, the problem is that my bleeding continued. And although my varices were repeatedly banded and finally just settled down entirely, the bleeding continued from my hepatic gastropathy. And so I would basically bleed every day, which is never a reassuring thing for a hemophilia. <laughs> no, I'd say not. <laughs> And during all of this, I did continue to work and do everything because in my mind, the way that my life was continuing because I just wouldn't let this get me down. Hmm. And then ultimately, the bleeding picked up a little bit and I realized that I couldn't live my life this way. And I saw a number of people and ultimately decided to have a distal splenoronal shunt in 2008 since then, I've had no further bleeding. It decompressed my portal hypertension. It's been great. My HIV has been totally under control. My hepatitis C is gone. I'm not bleeding. And the last 10 years of my life have been free of any major problems. That's wonderful. And now you get to age with the rest of us, <laughs> which is, of course, no fun. Well, I have to say, I never expected to age. I thought that I would just die young, and so all the things that happen when you age, like looking older, is something that I never really expected. <laughs> but it's a good problem to have. So, Eric, a couple of years ago, you decided to tell this story at a major oncology conference. What prompted you to do so? So I was getting this award at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, and as part of the award, there's a 45-minute lecture. I somehow knew that when there was the opportunity, I would always do this. I was secretive back when there was a lot of discrimination, but more recently, I haven't been terribly secretive. I very, very, very rarely ever shared my medical history with patients. 
but at the same time, if somehow someone heard, I wasn't horrified. And virtually all of my colleagues have known about my medical issues, but my colleagues at other institutions certainly didn't know. As part of getting this award, I felt like I needed to bring the different parts of my life together. And so I spent the first half hour talking about what has changed in breast cancer. And I spent the last 15 minutes telling this story. And I thought about it really carefully. It took me days and days to come up with the messages I wanted to get across and to create the right slides because the one thing I didn't want was anybody's pity or sympathy. I didn't want to be viewed in any different way. But I've always felt that there were some lessons that I've learned in all of this that maybe would be helpful to other people. And so I was doing my best to try to convey that. And what was the response? The response was more dramatic than I expected. This was an 8,000-person audience. And when I started to launch into my own story, people initially figured it was time to get up and leave. And then I quickly got to a place that seemed sort of interesting, and everybody was sort of there, not moving. And as one of my very close colleagues at Dana-Farber said, it was like an entire audience experience, that everybody was feeling the same thing, or certainly surprisingly, from my standpoint, moved by all of this. And I never intended to make anybody cry, but there were a lot of people crying. And for the rest of the meeting, which went on for another three days, I couldn't walk two feet without people coming up to me. And I still have people coming up to me about the talk. Eric, I'm not surprised at all. It's an incredible story on so many levels. One last thing to ask you uh, before we finish up, and that's whether your experience as a patient, because after all, you've been a patient your whole life, has had an impact on how you are as a doctor. I assume it has. I mean, how could it not have? I don't remotely believe that you have to have these kinds of experiences to be an effective doctor. And I don't think that this makes me so different from someone else. But I know what it's like to be in the medical system a little bit more. I know how important it is when you're diagnosed with an illness to feel like there are people you can turn to. Mm -hmm. One of the things as a program that we pride ourselves on, not just me, but all of my colleagues, is really being there for patients. And when somebody has a new diagnosis, getting them in quickly and trying to allow them to see that there's help available and we're going to do our best. The other thing, and I talked about this in my lecture, is that if you scratch below the surface, everybody's got something. Very few people lead the perfect life that's been always charmed. And of course, that's true of our patients as well. So they're all coming to this experience with a whole range of other experiences. And I have to say, in terms of dealing with HIV and hepatitis C and GI bleeding and all of these things, I think I had an advantage because I never thought of myself as totally healthy. I had dealt with illness as a child and so I had a lot of early training, and a lot of our patients don't necessarily have that, and we have to remember it. Yeah, I think it's a reflection of your personality that you view it that way, and it's wonderful. So anyway, Eric, I want to thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Paul. And I've been talking with Dr. Eric Weiner about his experience as a person who is living with HIV, hepatitis C, 
cortical hypertension, many other things, and he's director of the breast cancer program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School.